This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about logic and reason, and beyond when the ends not only don't justify the means, but the means are contrary to the desired ends. I've been thinking about short-sightedness and how we can miss the forest and the trees completely by staring at a pile of rocks on the ground. My guest today is journalist and author Sin K. Henderson. Mr. Henderson was a writer on HBO's The Newsroom. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, and The Washington Post. He has a book on race and public education due out next year, being published by St. Martin's Press, and so I feel exceptionally lucky to be speaking with him today. So welcome, Sin K., and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. That was a great introduction. I sound so impressive. <laughs> you are impressive. <laughs> Wait till they hear more about you. So yeah. be- before we started live on the show, um, Sinke was asking, you were asking me how I found you. And I was kind of touting my research skills. But I found you because I had had an experience at our um, local public charter school where they had sent out a letter saying we should bring our kids, even if they were a little sick, and, um, you know, definitely err on the side of bringing them to school. And I thought, okay, first of all, like if my child is a little sick, I'm, I'm really not going to bring him to school. And secondly, science should tell you that you don't want me to bring my child to school because they are the most infectious when they are first getting sick and the symptoms are just mild. And that's when they're going to really contaminate everyone else. And you're going to have more kids sick and more kids out of school. So, I thought, okay, instead of calling the school and, and, and making trouble, I'm going to do a, a show on this. And so I was researching that and found your article. Do you have a copy of that letter? I absolutely do. Please, I will obscure the name of the school, right. but please give it to me and I'll put it in my book if you're okay with oh, that. I, I think that'd be fantastic. That is a great, I, in writing this book, I found, uh, and again, cut me off, I'm going on too much, but you know, you have to write a proposal and then you have to actually write the book, which is the scary part. They don't tell you after you sell a book that you actually have to write it. Um, so I've been I all by found, yourself. You have to do it all by yourself. <laughs> right. So I found that the best way to convince and to lure or to sort of um, invite someone into an idea is to build one real world analogies. And like, this is like this. This is like this. You've seen this. Here is concrete proof. If you that it would be the perfect segue. And this is great because it's a great this is why you looked me up. It's a great segue into that chapter when I get into it. Fantastic. Thanks so much. So let's let's talk about your article that that I found in The Washington Post, how some school funding formulas hurt learning and make schools more dangerous. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. Did you want to ask? No, 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 no. No, we can just start Um, general. Well, that's, as I said, that's one of the, as I've been researching this issue, I, as you said, I, I'm a television writer, but I'm also obsessed with public education. Um, and I write at night. I'm a, naturally a night owl. If I could go to bed at the time that I want to go to bed, I'd be in bed at 4 a.m., right before the sun comes up, and then sleep till like noon and that sort of thing. Um, but that's not good. And um, so, but what I found was I was sometimes not, just kind of totally um, whittling away my day and kind of only starting later than I said. So I said, you know what, let me give myself something to do during the day. I'll be up and then I can sort of start writing at night. So I started to substitute and loved it instantly. And um, both of my parents were educators. I've always been interested in education. I was a tutor in college, after college, even when I was working as an executive at 
a fancy uh, movie studio. I worked on the weekends tutoring kids and I've tutored non-famous people, famous people, their children up. So anyway, short order, uh, started to substitute, really liked it, even though it was sort of intense, let's just say that. Uh, and as I was doing it, since I was also interested in public education, I, uh, you know, I just have a curious mind. And so I was thinking, well, why are things happening this way? You know, why is this being done? Why is the assistant principal making this suggestion? Like you say, they're insisting that the parents bring their kids, even if they're a little sick. Um, that's the kind of thing that would make me say, huh? And in your situation, I know that you focus on in the article, you are talking about kids who are being disruptive. Uh, they aren't being served. The other kids and the teachers aren't being served really to an extreme. And yet you're thinking, why, why aren't these, why are the kids still here? Why aren't they being suspended? Well, why aren't they being expelled? Right. I had a kid threaten me in the worst way. I mean, like if I had not backed away, we would have been in a fist fight. I would some one of us would be arrested. I would have some mark on my and this happens. It's not that common, but it's not unheard of either. Let's put it that way. And I had to make a hard case with the principal. Unfortunately, the principal respected me and I've been there off and on for over a year. Um, but anyway, he ended up getting suspended for three days, I believe. Uh, and. I think the assistant principal said to me, you have to learn to get along with him because it's his only history class. And I just remember thinking, this is all backwards. Like every, every the way I've had to press this issue, it was so witnessed by so many people. The way I had to, I had to write a long letter explaining. Not that that's wrong. There's due process. I understand that. But but and then there were students who were just as aggressive and disruptive and disrespectful. I couldn't put them out of class. It was just a very unusual discipline system. But what really made me figure it out was there was this one kid who was the worst, one of the worst kids I've ever dealt with. I've dealt with some tough, tough kids. And a parent came up to me and said, I think at the time it was maybe $37 a day. She was on the, the school sort of version of the PTA. And she just saw him sort of cursing out a teacher and that sort of thing. And she was just like, $37 a day. And I was like, again, being a curious person, I said, well, what's that? What do you mean? And she's like, oh, well, that's how much they get paid per kid per day that they're here. And I was like, what the H is that? And then I started thinking about it. I was like, oh, these are the small things that have major repercussions that parents don't know about, public doesn't know about, even teachers don't necessarily know about. But it happened behind the scenes in the sausage making process of um, how federal funds get distributed to state funds from state to local funds but have very specific and concrete impact on school environments. This kid should have, his brother, he had a twin, his twin brother had gotten a fist fight with a female teacher. And only then did they put him out. This kid basically had to run the school. And I just thought, well, why is this? And I just realized they tie school funding in a very specific way to daily attendance. And for a small school and be, with the growth of charters, and I have worked at charters and let me say my opinion on charters is they're here to stay. You got to get beyond. We got to get rid of charters. They're here to stay. Now, I'm very much for regulated charters, aggressively regulated charters. I think they need a mission. They need a specific plan for that mission, how they're going to carry that. And, and you're in California, right, Sinke? I'm, so yeah, I'm I, in California. I know in California, they're, they're the, well, first of all, let's say there's just a few states that yes. tie enrollment 
uh, right. to funding. And also, right. I know in California, there's been a big problem with the charters as far as a group of parents will oh. start it. They really aren't inclusive. They've only got their kids and their kids' siblings and the friends. And so we'll, we're going to have to do another show show on charters because yeah, sure. there's a lot to yeah. talk about there. Yeah, it's um, much too unregulated, I'll say so, that. So, you know, you think, okay, $37 or $41 doesn't sound like a lot per child per day. So I want to paint the picture a little bit, which I thought you did so well, that if a school loses 10 students, they're docked $75,000 in a year, which is two, which is sadly the equivalent of two teacher salaries. And, Easily. You, and you said um, that in, uh, I believe it was San Diego, that over a five-year period, that system, school system got shortchanged $624 million. Yeah, yeah, that's that's bananas. And and so, how deep did you go in your research as far as how many states are doing this? What was sort of the impetus, and who thought it was a, a good idea? Well, um, as so many things in education, um, this a there are a thousand different motivations. Some of them work at cross purposes. So the idea, I'm not clear on who originated the idea of. Um, sometimes they call it backpack funding, but headcount funding, um, tying it specifically to a student. But one of the uh, motivations was to put in that because there was so much truancy, so many kids dropping out and not coming to school. Um, they sort of passed over to the administrators and there are no truant officers anymore. Truant judges don't really exist to that degree. They put um, the burden on administrators to sort of drum up student enrollment. So if it was so so they would say, look, if you want this money, you've got to get the kids in the school. And, so, and is that coming from at this level, are we talking about the state? That the state is communicating to the school if you want this money, um, well, you need to have the kids in the seats. And are well, they the pressured by federal regulation? I think my, my feeling is that the the feds don't make a distinction, that it's up to the state. The state, California, one problem with California is they, California likes to, particularly sort of the large school districts, but a lot of the charters as well, is, you know, I say about education, if it doesn't, we, there are a few things that mammals, adult human mammals have been doing forever and pretty well. And one of them is education. Uh, we have been educating our young since the beginning. If we use the same tactics to teach Latin that they used you know, 10 AD, kids would still learn Latin. There are only a few areas of human endeavor where we actually don't need to update the way we do a certain thing. And it could still be successful. If you use the same tactics to get, you know, to cure whatever diseases they had a thousand years ago, those tactics would work. You know, science has updated, but the methods of teaching, I'm not saying we can't incorporate new ideas, but Kids have been learning Latin since the beginning of time. Kids have been learning Euclid, Euclid's geometrics since the beginning of Euclid's geometrics. And those methods still work. And they're born in a natural state to learn. And they, and already have, they have the capacity. They have the drive. 100%. 100%. And so 
all of the excitement about the new techniques and the new endeavors, getting rid of handwriting, really are just a, a fetish about innovation, which I think is something that we're very excited about. We like in the modern world, we always want to be on the cutting edge of things and certain things that we need cutting edge, certainly on science and medicine as far as healing and that sort of thing. But there are areas, other areas of human endeavor that you don't need to constantly update the way certain things are done. So but, in that vein, the, the traditional uh, funding that's in most states right, right. that was rejected yeah, so, in these few states, what does that look like? So um, traditional funding is they get a, um, a, a influx of cash, both from the federal government and the states. And the states allow both municipalities, they will fund a school at a specific so if you go to a school and there are 2,000 people, 2,000 kids there, they give a general count of what your population size is. And they say that school should get X amount of money. They may still get $43 for those kids, but they won't deduct it daily if the kid doesn't show up. So that's the it's, the volatility is the dangerous part. So if a school will lose 200 kids at a school of 2,000 loses 200 kids for they transfer, they get kicked out. There's still more than enough funding for that school to function responsibly. And they can apply for other grants or they or they may even stay. And frankly, they that money may even still stay on the rolls until the next year. So, for example, there's states like South Carolina, not that South Carolina is thriving in education, but where I grew up, there are many states where charters don't have the same hold as they do in California. The point I was getting about California is California is, is and New York, they make fetishes of new practices. So they jump into new ideas without really looking into their consequences, without looking at the un, unintended consequences. And one of the problems is once you write something in the law and you haven't investigated the unintended consequences, you can't take a law back. It's very hard to repeal. Well, and you've invested in it, right? right. You you you, right. you want and, and kind of close your eyes to it not working because you're invested in the fact that you've adopted it already. Yes, exactly. And so I saw immediately that the unintended consequences of this uh, funding by headcount, you gave a perfect example of bringing students who were sick to school. Well, they want your child to them to be there for the 30 days that the count is done a month. They report that to whoever their school district is and they get the funding for the next couple of months um, or the back funding for that month. And that's just ridiculous. You know, instead of saying uh, instead of saying, you know, we're going to do it every three months or we're going to do it every six months and give an average. And that gives a principal and assistant principal some wiggle room for behavioral issues. They don't have to worry if I kick these four kids out. I still I'm still funded. I still have the funding that comes with them. So that's not going to uh, detrimentally impact the rest of my, the function of my school. And, and so what did you learn about the specific impacts in the area of programs and facilities and the educational experience? Well, um, as you know, charter schools aren't flush with cash. So they're constantly um, um, robbing computer to pay Paul. So this one school I had worked there off and on since the beginning of the school. It started with freshmen and added a year every year as a kids. So within four years, there was a four year class. Uh, it was a four year high school. Uh, and by the time these kids that I knew as freshmen were juniors moving into their senior year, 
and time for them to take the SAT and apply to colleges, I knew that they'd never heard of the SAT. You know, the counselor just said, oh, SAT. And I think maybe they vaguely heard it, but they certainly had no exposure to it. And, you know, being in a tough, underserved area, there was no chance these kids were going to get into. And some of them were brilliant. I mean, when I say brilliant, I mean, these were some brilliant kids. Um, not all of them, but then no school is full of all brilliant kids. But there were some kids who were in, whose minds were incandescent, but they didn't know anything about the SAT. And so I said, look, we got to do an SAT study hall or something. We have to hire a tutor. But I knew it was a poor school. And so I essentially coughed up the money out of my own pocket to pay a pretty expensive um, SAT tutor. Uh, and I think it embarrassed the principal a little bit. And he knew it was valuable. And so he said, oh, you know, let me see if I can find some. And I really was doing it on my own. Like I really didn't want to expect him to take money from something or needed him to. But it was not a cheap endeavor. And, but fortunately, I work in a different industry. So, I have, so in a long story short, I think the principal was a little embarrassed. ended up taking money from a different program, um, a different act, extracurricular activity. Um, and they didn't have a lot to put into this. And it wasn't my goal to embarrass him. I was happy to cough up the money. Um, so you take away money, you take away money for teachers, you take money for the sort of valuable non-curricular activities, which people don't understand the values of those. Um, you shortchange, for example, with behavior on how many office aides or in tough schools, they call them guards or that sort of thing. And you need those extra adult bodies in certain schools. <laughs> there seems like there's a difference <laughs> between office aides and guards. We might want to talk yeah. about that a little bit later. Yeah, the fact yeah. that now in schools, you actually do need guards rather than parent yeah. and office it's aides. True. Right. And you can call them what you want, but you need some tough guy or girl or woman, <coughs> you know, who's not easily intimidated roaming the halls of schools. You just need them and you need them in it. You need I, I work at a private school now, a sort of prestigious private school where our most recent Nobel Prize winner sent his daughter, uh, Nobel Literature Prize sent his daughter, Bob Dylan. And they've got tall office guards, you know, office or campus aides roaming the halls. You just need it at every school. It's not just about tough schools, but you certainly need a tough school. So, so it seems like the biggest problem is these schools are losing these funds, but their costs aren't changing at all. It doesn't exactly. affect their costs if the child is absent for that day, and yet they can right. lose a huge amount of money. Exactly. You have fixed costs as a school. You have the air, you have to pay air conditioning, you have to pay for lights, you have to pay for basic salaries. You have to, if there's, you know, all of those things, you uh, you know, you have to pay the janitor, the custodial staff. So there are set costs that are built into the running of any institution, certainly the running of any school. And so to have a school's budget fluctuate, that um, I just think is is fundamentally detrimental to the running of a school. Well, it seems like a spiral as well, because yes, you're yeah. keeping these kids in because you can't afford to to put them out. But then you're right. also losing all the staff and programs that maybe could be in place to actually help these kids transform. Exactly. And exactly. so there's maybe going to be more kids who are being disruptive and who are disrupted. Um, and, and down it goes around the drain. Right. And, you know, and that's absolutely the case. And there's so much with that. So, you know, this one school I recall, and the, the word disrupted is very important. And it's not only the issue of being disrupted 
for academic purposes, but there's also a social function. So I found that with the aggressive growth of charters in California, so I taught at this school that's a traditional public school that's well known in South LA. And I um, and I taught at a uh, charter school that who the district is well known in LA. And I remember I was a I was with a junior class, a ju- class of 11 graders, and I asked a student one. The student was probably halfway through the. I asked her what one of her classmates' name was. She didn't know. And I remember thinking, what? I said, no, right there. What's his name? She didn't know his name. She'd been in school with them for six months. But there's so much traffic of students coming in and out of these schools that kids just detach. And this was a small charter school. And I remember thinking, I went to a school, a high school in South Carolina with about 1,500 other kids. In our class, we knew, in our graduating class, we knew just about everybody's name, let alone our specific class, their first and last name. Now, we've gone to school with many of them since elementary school, but there were many who come in as high school students and that sort of thing. I remember when a student, a kind of popular kid, we were freshmen, left to go to Atlanta. The whole, we were, you know, 500, 600 students and really the whole school, we were devastated. And you cannot underestimate, particularly in what they call underserved areas, poor schools, the importance of that kind of stability. And community. Or losing that, yeah, that right? kind of community. Stability and that community kind, that they are then a part of and know absolutely. that they are a part of that community that they don't have elsewhere. Absolutely. absolutely. And what is now gone is when I was growing, when I, when I was in uh, um, elementary school, I was in middle school, I was being taught by 60 and sometimes 70 year old teachers. Well, they don't exist anymore. They're for the by and large, particularly in tough areas. And I grew up in a not great area. I grew up in a rural town in the South. Um, They aren't around anymore. And these were teachers who could boast having taught two and three generations of a family. Oh, you taught my sister. You taught my aunt. You taught my mom. You taught my grandma. And you can't underestimate the importance of having that kind of stability, that kind of institutional memory. Set aside the academic, which is crucially important, but particularly for for any environment, but especially for environments where there is violence, there is chaos, there is uh, a lot of sort of social disruption outside of school's doors. You can't underestimate the importance of having a stable educational institution where there are 15 teachers or 30 percent or 20 percent of teachers who can say, I've been here for 50 years. Well, in a place where you are known because yes. they knew your family and, they knew, and, and so you're seen because if you don't know that kid's name who you've been in class with for six months, you aren't feeling known and seen. Right. Absolutely. And the classmate. Exactly. And so the classmates as well, there is no um, there's no bond there. There's no sense of community there. Um, and all of that tears away at the, st- the stability of a community, the stability of a school. And so just back to this general issue on charters and this issue of counting all these things, counting by head count. All of these things are not factored in when we only see public education as a different market to marketplace to enter to make money or not make money or where we're just the fetish for competition, the fetish for innovation. Um, These are the unintended consequences. And unfortunately, the people who are championing 
the competition and championing the innovation. They don't send their kids to these schools. And you know, so do you think we've become distracted from the primary goal of education, which is to educate our children. When when I mentioned to someone that I was doing this show and kind of had a brief talk about it, and they thought, well, you know, just sort of the, the purpose of our schools is to educate our kids. And you wonder how much that has gotten lost in the sort of what you call the dis- distractors, but also <coughs> just the focus on managing now this system. Yeah, I mean, there's so much extra work that is being, I, I'd say two things. One is we now have a stronger sense with all of I'm writing about this in the book as well. The trauma studies, which is, you know, you experience enormous trauma, some sort of trauma as a child that relates to how you concentrate in school. And I'm a little bit agnostic about some of it. Again, I'm nervous about some of it because it's so new. And none of us know how the brain works. Not even the most sophisticated neuroscientists can say for sure. They know there's a one-to-one correlation between, you know, experiencing a divorce and not being able to pay attention as a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old. There is, there is strong correlative evidence that these things are connected, and I'm con- I'm I'm easily convinced that they're connected. I am less convinced that there is a direct correlation or causation, but that's another debate. Um, So um, but I do think I do think the salutary aspect of that is I think of a larger sense that educating kids is more than just the book they're reading is more than just where they are in algebra. You know what level of math they are. That is paramount. But in tandem with that link with that in lockstep with that has to be a conversation about what kind of person they are, what kind of person we're raising them to be as a civilian. So I'm glad on the one hand that a lot of the new conversation about education is actively starting to incorporate conversation about character, um, behavior, how we treat each other. But I do think, yes, that the influx of so many people who do not think hard and carefully about the ramifications of what they're doing because there is a profit motive does undermine the fundamental goal of educating our kids. I mean, writing this book, I'm not a dumb guy. You know, I'm I'm smarter than the average bear. These are things I've been thinking about aggressively now for three years and been doing aggressive, both personal research so I can combine my experience as a teacher. Plus, I literally have in my room on my desk a stack of about 10 um, uh, law review articles because I'm researching, for example, the history of children's rights. Where does that come from? Where did that originate? Who invented the idea? How did it evolve? How does it impact today's conversation about public education? Well, the system has to fit the environment. You've got kids here who are struggling with, on a daily basis, very specific experiences. Whether there's a a causal relationship or not, there's a relationship clearly as to what they're dealing with on a daily basis. And that can't be ignored. And yes, there's this new movement with grit and that that this is such an important element for success. There's no question that these kids have grit. You don't have to sit them down and test their grit level. So, you know, let's look at the things that are missing. And by tying the funding of these particular schools that are already struggling to having the kids in the seat, which is part of this whole cycle, it's hard for them to be in that seat on a daily basis for all that's happening in their lives outside of school. 
Right. And just on that, you absolutely end the issue of Grid. I wrote a little short review of Paul Tuff's new book. Um, and oh, I was I'm putting that my comments, I should say, in the book. And one of my problems on this issue of discipline and disruption is one of my problems with the whole grit movement is it may matter. There, there are two questions. What matters for an individual student and what matters for a teacher in a school? So at the private school that I teach at, I've got as many distracted, lazy, non-interested knuckleheads as I have in the public school. Maybe not the exact same percentage, but a high percentage. I just finished grading a government test. These are all rich kids. I got a bunch of Fs. So they in this class, <clears throat> these are ninth graders. It's not a hard class. <clears throat> I like it to be a fun class. And these kids live wonderful lives. They went to all went to Europe for the summer, which my kids in public school did not. But there plenty of them don't have grit. Plenty of them don't pay attention in class. Plenty of them are space cadets. But the one thing they don't do is they don't fight the teacher. They don't curse at the teacher. So the one the issue that I have with this issue of grit lumping all of the, you know, grit resilience. So I guess what I'm saying is there is no clear way to teach someone to have grit. There are ways to teach and encourage kids to behave. And so I'm a little wary of that conversation because I think it ignores what the reasons that a school is failing as opposed to say why a kid is failing. And a kid. So if I have three kids in my class that don't have grit, that's only a problem for those three kids. But I have three kids in my class who think it's okay to throw a book at me or throw a book at another student. That's a problem for my class. And I think that it's important that that distinction be made. And it tells you how imprecise the science is and why would we should be wary about glomming on wholeheartedly to science that is still very imprecise. I'm sorry, I don't know if that makes sense. It it absolutely does. We're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with journalist and author Sin K. Henderson, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum Community Radio. All right, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with Sin K. Henderson, writer and author. We're talking about the public school education system and the formulas for funding. So I want to talk a little bit, Sin K., about another article that you wrote, um, The Three Places Obama Could Teach, an article okay. in The New Yorker. One thing that you mentioned, and we, we've, we've hit on it just a little bit, about the fact that in these schools, a lot of these kids don't have a sense of stability and also don't have a sense of maybe connectedness and a feeling of place. You had said in the article that um, in 2013, less than 2% of public school teachers were black men. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Why is that relevant? Why does it matter to have uh, black men teaching in, in some of these schools? Well, obviously... Um, there's actually a great article that just came out. I forget where it was that said that, which I was charmed by. And I kind of had this on with my experience as well is I guess the study was all students, not just minority students, like having minority teachers, which I sort of was sort of charmed by teaching. Like I said, it's at a private school now, predominantly white. And I find that my being black, you know, I'm obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously a good teacher. I'm a pretty good teacher. I, because all of their teachers are white, I think that I bring a different 
personality to the way of approaching things. And I finally like the difference, specifically for kids, black kids, um, uh, black males, certainly black females. Uh, obviously, the, the environments they grow up in where there are not a lot of professional black men in the homes or uh, in the communities for the variety of reasons that we all know. It's important for the most obvious uh, reason, role modeling, uh, surrogate fatherhood, uh, mentorship, and it really does have an impact. I recall when I first started at this one school, um, this middle school, this kid used, would slip and call me dad, you know, and he would be embarrassed. He did it like three times and I would never draw attention to it, but I just thought, this is the this is the environment that I'm working in. So why should I be shocked by that? You know, and so this was a kid, obviously, who didn't have a dad and they care about that, particularly the boys. Now, middle school, all the boy, I was the, all the boys favorite teachers. I wouldn't say I was all the girls favorite teachers, but middle school girls are a little more complicated. <laughs> um, um, and that kind of thing matters. Um, and we can say that it doesn't. Um, I also think it matters for the functioning of a school. Um, I do think that there is a valuable balance to having a good number of female teachers and a good number of male teachers just for the interaction, even amongst the staff. And the, all studies show that um, being able to incorporate both the um strictly educative um, uh, aspects of uh, raising kids, plus the parental sense, the parental guidance, it just helps kids uh, helps kids to improve across the board. You mentioned in the article, um, you talked about in Coates's Between the World and Me, a little mm -hmm. bit about his experience at Howard and what it was like to be able to be in an environment with people who were like him and right. that it allowed him, he says, and I thought this was so poignant to rid himself of shame and hatred in his heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's um, just such a huge statement. Yeah. You know, there, look, I, I'm hoping that this book that I'm working on is not just about education. It's about a lot of things. It's about, or I will say it's about education in the fullest sense of the word, not just going to school, learning math, learning algebra, learning English, um, reading, writing, arithmetic, but also what it means to be a citizen. So I'm dealing with Black Lives Matter. I'm dealing with um, Colin Kaepernick. I'm dealing with, uh, you know, every aspect really of race in the uh, American, just in American life as it pertains to as it impact schools. And so um, one of the things that I'm talking about is you know, the idea of protest and this idea of, um, let me give you an example. This is one of the stories in the book I'm telling. I taught at a, uh, I subbed at a white, uh, kind of well-known uh, school in Hollywood. It was a well-known public school in Hollywood. And the ethnicity is uh, Mexican and Armenian primarily, a few black kids and then white kids. Uh, there was a class, it was pretty much all white kids. And a black kid came in late, guy, young man, maybe 16, 17. And he was full of, you know, swagger. He was the local, you know, bad boy in this class. The girls, all of whom were, uh, like I said, white, were, you know, endlessly charmed by him and that sort of thing. And he came in late. He started to be a little disruptive. And I said, you know, can you keep it down? Um, 
And I had to talk to him a couple times, like just keeping it down. You know, I'm very low key, particularly it was like juniors and seniors. So it was not a lot of problem. At one point, he kind of snapped at me a little disrespectfully. And I said, man, you, you know, basically tried to calm him down. It worked its way to the point where he ended up calling me the N word. And I remember saying, what? What did you just call me? And he's like, man, I'm black. I could do that. And I was like, dude, if you don't get I, it was bad. I mean, I'm from South Carolina. As I say, we invented the word mean. Um, and so I kicked him out and I started thinking about it. And I started thinking, you know, this is where we're at in the world today. There are two things going on. And this is very specific. And so, you know, this is just something I'm dealing with. The I, I like rap music. like any, I mean, I'm a fan. But the last incarnation of rap music, which is to say, like uh, incarnation, even on gangster rap, which I listen to is something I call fetish rap, which is all black guys and girls who are not black in some sort of sexual situation. And it's a sort of complicated history, but all of the girls in rap are Spanish or they're white or that sort of thing. So that's one thing that's very dominant in sort of black popular culture and American popular culture. You got Kim Kardashian, who obviously only dates black guys. When I was growing up, that was con that many serious people, many serious people now think that's actually a form of racism to have a fixation and to celebrate your fixation on guys just because they're black. Why is that relevant to what I'm saying? Then on the other hand, you have um, what we see the explosion in police violence against black boys and black men. So I, as I said in the book, we are now raising a population of young black boy and girl where there are two dominant, two dominant images, one population of white person targeting them for their skin color for violent purposes, and then another population targeting their skin color for sexual purposes with nobody, no dad, no scholars, no one in the public life reminding us that those two things are actually very linked and very similar. And it's set in the middle of a larger culture that has, I think, culturally, politically, in our educational system, a sort of this bed of disrespect and anger that yes. has really either evolved or at least come to the surface in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, you see it among Congress or in, in the discourse right. with the, the president. I've noticed people don't say Mr. President. They say right, Obama. Right. That's a, right. a little thing, but a huge change. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when I'm looking at this kid as angry as I was with him, but how, he didn't have a dad. You know, he grew up with, you know, his mom single mother because I talked to the, the assistant principal every day. I'm like, this kid, and I'm not one to endlessly forgive misbehavior. You have to be stern and imply stringency, but you also have to understand what it means to grow up for a young black boy to realize on the one hand, there's a huge population of famous people he, who are excited by him, think he's cool just because he's black, whatever bizarre fantasies they elaborate that as a young man with hormones are excited by, but also, but, but do not realize that that's in some ways intimately linked to hatred for people with black skin. So let's talk a little bit about what you see, and this is a huge topic, but we'll yeah. start into it, as the shift that needs to take place and what role the educational system plays in that. And we um, can even start with the Black Lives Matter movement because you know here we've got something akin to the civil rights movement where it's right. not just the black community involved in this movement. 
It's right. people, all people of color, and it's 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 all areas and level of of the the nation. Um, Not even say in the, the world, right? There's yeah, no yeah, internet. Absolutely. There's participants ac- across the globe. Absolutely, and I think that my feeling about the black, I am generally supportive. I, however, I wonder, there was a big article and arguing about the Black Lives Matter. You know, it's decentralized. It doesn't have a clear leader. It can be sometimes too disruptive. Yes and no. So let me kind of tell you my feeling about the Black Lives Matter movement. There's a thing called respectability politics. I don't know if you've heard about this. Ta-Nehisi Coates, actually. Um, There were a lot of people, Black elders, who were criticizing certain tactics of the Black Lives Matter movement. Because they said that in the search for, in a society like the U.S., to make large-scale political change, you need allies. You need people who are sympathetic to your cause. You cannot, black people can't do it alone, women can't do it alone, and just in democratic politics, um, even the Republican Party, and I'm not a Republican, but it's a coalition that's fracturing now because they have so many different uh, people in that I, I party. I think we can say fractured. Oh, yeah, fair enough. But large political parties are made up of allies. They are, which is to say, they are made up of people who have similar goals, but not exactly goals are not exactly the same. Of some rich Wall Street banker, his goals aren't really the same as some evangelical in the heart of Texas. But they've come together as allies and have made a, you know, now is a little different. But for the most part, they've gotten whatever agenda they kind of share. So with Black Lives Matter and the Colin Kaepernick, when his first method of protesting was to sit during the national anthem. And then the next day, people got upset. The next day he was at uh, training and on pig socks. To me, I thought that was too far. But then he went to talk to someone. He got some criticism. He went to talk to someone. And then he chose instead to kneel. A, a veteran. He a said, veteran, I yes. totally support your expression here and what you're doing. But let me just let you know what my experience is with it. And he very respectfully said, all right, I'm going to kneel one knee. Which is the most beautiful expression of, <clears throat> I think, both protest and respect. Now, mind you, there are people infuriated still. But there are also people who are picking up that practice. There are white or mixed uh, football uh, teams in Oregon. There was a white veteran who kneeled. So, look, there is no protest that's ever going to get 100 percent allies. But there are different types. And then he got on the cover of Time kneeling. I thought that was to me, that's respectability politics at play. And so bringing that to education one of the reasons that um, it's important to have stringency in schools, black schools, white schools, poor schools, rich schools, you know, as one of my colleagues said, are we raising drones and worker bees? Or are we raising citizens? We have to train, teach, encourage students to master their own bodies and master their own minds, particularly poor students, particularly black students, because we are raising them to be prepared for a fight. And we have to raise them to know how to wage that fight. And they need to control of their own minds. They need control of their own bodies in order to wage that fight. So we're not just preparing them for to get a job. We are preparing them for that, clearly. But we are preparing to be engaged 
in the civic institutions that exist in a democracy. And so just trying to bring Black Lives Matter to education is when black teachers, white teachers, whatever, are teaching in the inner city, teaching in these environments, we are not telling kids to behave just because we need you to behave. We need you to be able to grow up to be Colin Kaepernick, to be able to have an instinct about injustice, to make a choice that may not be the wisest choice, to have the humility to take instruction from an elder, in this case, a veteran, to say, that hurts me a little too much. I respect your protest. What about this? And then to have the intellect, the reason, the control of your ego, to be able to subdue your ego enough to find a different way to assert your ego and to assert your rights. And so that's generally why I think it's important. People need to understand when people say kids need to behave, kids need to behave the importance of that. And then there are very specific things I think we can do legally, politically, to make it easier to rear students in these tough, underserved environments. And so that's my general Well, take. Well, and in a democracy, there is an idea that seems to have been lost a little bit lately in many areas, that there is something called the common good. Yes. And exactly. so we may disagree, we may have different perspectives, we might have different positions, but if you are aware and feel that somehow you are connected and right. and participating and will then get the benefits of this common good right you no know, that that changes the discussion it seems right absolutely and you know as crazy as you know when you look at some of the more fringe supporters of Trump and you're like these guys are out to lunch um and they should be ignored but as Hillary has said as Bernie Sanders has said there is a problem with that environment that where you go to ask parts of Pennsylvania and once thriving communities have been wiped out because of aspects of globalization. I hope that if Hillary wins knock on wood, that they address the underlying economic circumstances that are torn away the civic environment that these poor or working class white people, and they're all white, you know, are living in. They deserve to have their needs and their anxieties and their issues addressed and met by the leaders of this country, even if they never vote for Hillary, even if they never vote for Barack. They still have a right to be um, listened to and respected. And I do think, you know, they are a part of the fabric of the world that I belong to, even if I'm not personal friends with them. And, I, you know, I grew up in South Carolina. I have friends or people I went to school with who are members of the Tea Party. I'm not necessarily buddies with them, but I get that mindset and I think that they deserve jobs as much as anybody else does. And I do think that, you know, just I'll close on this or I know where um, is one of the things I'm trying to bring up when I bring up the Colin Kaepernick is if you read um, the and I had to read it this past year for my uh, government class, the Declaration of Independence. As I'm sure you know, the history of the we were colonies essentially controlled by Britain. There are all of these abuses by King George, taxation uh, representation, get rid of getting rid of judges, sacking legislatures just for years and years and years. And finally, um, the colonists wrote with, you know, Thomas Jefferson as the lead, wrote the Declaration of Independence in which he said, these are our grievances. These are the long list of things that the king has done and that we've endured patiently. And then they write and said, we um, we state these grievances to a candid world. 
And one of the great scholars of the Declaration says that the the colonists were looking for allies. So they basically wrote a letter to the world to say we have respectfully and humbly. And they used all these words patiently endured all of these grievances from an abusive king. And we are now saying to the world, please help us fight this issue. And so I take that when I apply to respectability politics today and and learning today, that even the founders of this nation were looking for allies in their struggle against their version of tyranny over 200 years ago. And so when just bring it back to Black Lives Matter and teaching kids to to put your best foot forward, to put your respectable, most respectable self forward. It's more than just about getting a job. We live in a complicated, volatile democracy where the search for allies is permanent and ongoing. And to draw and to invite strangers to trust you, which is essentially what allies are, you have to be able to sometimes subdue your own ego and subdue your own will. And so within that, uh, and the, the reference to history, is that something that's been lost in our educational system? The the common knowledge of our common history and the ability for critical thought. I heard a conversation recently with the authors of the March trilogy, the graphic novel, Congressman John mm-hmm. Lewis and Andrea mm-hmm. Din and, and Nate Powell, and talking about the complete, almost complete lack of um, knowledge in this generation of even the civil rights movement, let alone be, be beyond, beyond that going backwards. Right. But right. that how critical that is for people mm-hmm. to have an understanding of, of history and especially yeah, I, of that movement. Absolutely. For myself, you know, I, the thing about the declaration, I've taught and read the declaration many times. I had not glossed that or understood that, aspect of things until I read this great book by a scholar named Danielle Allen. And it immediately, as I went, was reading it and I was, cause I was generally doing research, you know, I'm reading pretty widely, but as I was researching the book, I realized these issues and the whole book is called our declaration was from her experience teaching night school. She taught school during the day at university of Chicago, but she also taught night school to adults. These were people from the local neighborhood in Chicago, people who had were single mothers, that sort of thing. And she walked them through and together they debated and discussed the Declaration of Independence. And it brought life to that class. It both looked in the daytime and the nighttime. And they all approached it from different ways, but they saw that this was a part of a common legacy. <clears throat> now, mind you, of course, it's important to remind you that these people owned slaves. These people were in large part indifferent to the struggle of the chattel slavery, the chattel slaves that they um, were uh, bringing into the new world. Um, and that cannot be gainsaid. It cannot be ignored. That's an absolute part of this history. We have to put all of that in there. But there's a lot to learn from things about ourselves, about our own weaknesses, about our own greatness, about our own fallibility. You know, there's the social justice um, version of history, which I find valuable. I dislike the version of social justice history that is only about beating up people in the past, that is all about, that is only about feeling superior to people in the past. That is an aspect, I think, of social justice um, education that I think is, does a disservice to um, 
you know, these people. Uh, and as you say, there's a population today that kind of disdains the civil rights movement. Disdains might be strong, but sort of looks down on those tactics. Well, that's the uh, so far been the only short of the Civil War. Those tactics that Martin Luther King borrowed from Gandhi is the one of the most successful social movements in world history. And certainly one of the top and most successful in the U.S. history. Um, and so to just kind of poo-poo it and say, you know, that we're doing things different this this generation, I think is unhelpful. And that is why you need teachers to remind young people. You know, young people always think they have the right answers. I certainly did when I was young. But that's what history teaches you, that there are lessons to learn. And, and, and yeah. to maybe so, understand that the inclusivity within that movement was yes. part of what created its success, just as you mentioned with back in, in the 1700s. Right. Absolutely. You know, and had uh, other kingdoms who saw that a, a large, powerful colony was revolting against a king, that they... they England could have gotten a lot of allies to help them fight the colonists. But essentially, France stayed out of it. The Habsburg stayed out of it. Other kings and queens and empires stayed out of it because they thought, look, these guys, Benjamin Franklin's a bright guy. He's come to the French court. He said, look, this is what we're doing. And the French king said, OK, you know, we'll stay out of it. We'll let you guys figure that out. And so, again, you need allies, you need friends, you need elders, you certainly need young people. They bring energy to any movement, but you also need the respect um, that comes um, that comes with the patient study of history. Um, you need to look at innovation, I think, in the education system a little skeptically. It is not the beginning and end of all things. There's a lot to learn from the way people taught kids in the past. There's a lot to learn from the way people um, uh, 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 engaged in civil, civil disobedience in the past. And all these things are is our rich playground for public education. And um, I just hope uh, that we start to have more meaningful conversations at the political level as well, because they're the ones who are, um, control the purse strings and some way control the dialogue and, as they say, the discourse around these things. And there's a lot of room for improvement um, uh, at every level. So that's my hope with the book and with these ideas. All right, Sinkay Henderson, I think we have the title for your next book. What can the Black Lives Matter movement learn from Ben Franklin? I think we got your yeah, title but, and we have your topic. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right. So, so thank you so much for joining us. No and that got me thinking. And when can we expect your book out? And do you have a title? And um, we right now it will is due. Uh, to, I published my manuscript is due in December. I'm trying to get it early. It's just not going to be out till sometime next year. Probably the end of the middle to end of next year. Um, we have a title. Um, I don't love it. I think I may change right now. We'd sit down and shut up, but I think it's going to change. Um, that's a funny kind of catchy title, but I'm, I think they're going for something a little more serious because it's a little more, I would maybe more include, it has more ideas in it, more, a bit more ideas than just telling kids to sit down. Um, so we'll see, but I'll certainly keep you posted and we'll have to do, we'll have to revisit or come back and talk to you guys once I have it. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You take care. Be good. Great, great to talk with you. you okay. Take care. Bye bye. bye.